Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. January 20th, 1998. 12-year-old Stephanie Crow, a cute girl with brown bangs, goes to bed. Her parents and her two brothers are also in the house, in their own rooms. Stephanie's window is unlocked. So is the sliding glass door in her parents' bedroom. It's a normal night for the Crow family in Escondido, California, a quiet suburb outside San Diego. But sometime in the dark, early morning hours, a murderer creeps inside. The next day, Stephanie's parents discovered her body on the floor of her bedroom. She'd been stabbed eight times, dying quietly in the night. Police quickly arrived at the scene. From the start, detectives believed the girl's murder was an inside job. There were no signs of an intruder, and they thought Stephanie's 14-year-old brother, Michael, wasn't upset enough about his sister's death. They put the parents up in a motel. Their two surviving children were taken to a county shelter. Without the parents' knowledge, detectives brought Michael in for questioning. They interrogated the teen boy for 27 hours using the read technique, a standard method of interrogation for police at the time. This method of interrogation was developed by a Chicago police officer named John Reed in the 1950s, after Reed successfully gained a confession from a man named Daryl Parker for the murder of his wife. The read technique consists of a three-phase process that begins with fact analysis, followed by a suspect interview to develop behavioral information, and finally, a nine-step accusatory interrogation during which detectives are allowed to lie to the suspect, suggesting that they have evidence that doesn't exist, that the polygraph shows they were lying, even if they don't, and then they give the person a chance to admit guilt. And even though the case that Reed used to create this method, the murder of Daryl Parker's wife and his subsequent confession, was overturned and Parker was actually found to be innocent, nobody cared because it got results. The Reed method was especially good 
at eliciting confessions from juveniles and suspects with mental disabilities. During Michael's interrogation, detectives told him that they had found physical evidence proving that he had murdered his sister, which was not true. They told him that he had failed a polygraph and that even his parents thought he did it. Again, not true. Eventually, Michael broke down under the pressure and confessed. In a video of the interrogation, Michael can be heard saying, I'm only saying this because it's what you want to hear. After the interview, police arrested Michael and charged him with murdering his sister. And even though he was 14, he was going to be tried as an adult. He was sent to jail, where he waited in a cell for six months as the date of his trial approached. Then, just before the trial, the results from DNA testing came in. The data tied a local schizophrenic named Richard Raymond Tewitt to the crime. He had been seen in the neighborhood the night of the murder, knocking on doors and looking in windows. The San Diego County DA dismissed the charges against Michael, but let the case languish without charging Tewitt for two years. Tewitt was eventually convicted of the crime. That conviction was later overturned on appeal. For destroying Michael's life, the city of Escondido awarded Michael and his family $7.25 million in 2011, and then a court declared that the boy was formally innocent of all charges. So why did young Michael confess to killing his sister if he didn't really do it? Why are police detectives using a technique that has been proven to send innocent people to prison? And is there a better way to interview suspects? This is The Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. False confessions are probably as old as crime itself. When the Great Fire of London destroyed much of the old city in 1666, a man named Robert Hubert stepped forward and said he'd started the fire by throwing a bomb through a bakery window. An investigation revealed that Robert was not even in the country when the fire began and was too physically disabled to throw a puppy, let alone a bomb. The fire actually started when a spark popped out of an oven in the bakery, setting fire to some nearby fuel. They hanged Robert anyway because, well, he was a Frenchman and a Catholic and they needed somebody to blame. So it goes. There are three main types of false confessions, and it's important to recognize their differences. There are the voluntary false confessions, where a person will take credit for a crime they know they didn't commit. One reason to do this is to save the real perpetrator from going to jail. You see this when parents confess to a crime to save a kid or a spouse. And sometimes weirdos will confess to a crime they didn't commit because they crave attention and want to be associated with a high-profile crime because they get off on it, like the case of John Mark Carr. In 2006, Carr claimed to have killed JonBenet Ramsey. At the time, he was 41 years old and working as a teacher in Thailand. He said he drugged the girl before sexually assaulting her and killing her. Police arrested him, but the facts he provided to police were easily found in newspaper reports and his DNA did not match a sample found at the crime scene. It appeared he was in love with the girl, and simply wanted to be associated with her in any way possible, even a false confession. Gross, right? By the way, 
Carr has since changed his name to Alexis Val Reich and identifies as transgender, though his ex-fiancee believes Carr did this only to get closer to young girls inside a cult he's forming made up of Jean Benet lookalikes. Yes, you heard that right. The second category of false confessions are the coerced, compliant confessions. This is where a person confesses to a crime they know they didn't commit just to end the interview. Remember how Michael Crow told police he was just telling them what they wanted to hear? Or as a way of winning a shorter sentence in a case they believe they will lose? Our prosecutors in Cuyahoga County are notorious for pushing for coerced compliant confessions by overcharging suspects. Alleged criminals here are often charged with half a dozen counts that rack up a potentially life-ending sentence if a jury finds them guilty. So even if a person is innocent, it's advantageous for them to work with the prosecutor to reduce the number of charges in exchange for pleading guilty. One good example of this is how the West Memphis Three agreed to an Alford plea in exchange for getting out of prison. Even though Damien Eccles maintains his innocence, an Alfred plea is in fact a type of guilty plea, but it was his only chance at freedom in the backwater jurisdictions of rural Arkansas. And finally, there's the most tragic of false confessions, the coerced internalized confessions, where an innocent man becomes convinced that he really did commit the crime. Memory is a funny thing. It's not static. In fact, it's very malleable, especially in children and low IQ suspects, people who lack self-confidence. A good example of this is the case of Brendan Dassey. He was a 16-year-old kid with an IQ of 73. An IQ of 70 or lower is considered intellectually disabled. He was a prime target for a false confession, and police used the Reed technique when they interrogated him four times over a 48-hour period. Finally, Dassey confessed to assisting his uncle, Stephen Avery, in the rape and murder of Teresa Halbach. If you've seen Making a Murderer, it did appear that Dassey actually believed he did it for a time. And though he later recanted his confession, Dassey was tried as an adult and sentenced to life in prison. The statistics on false confessions are heartbreaking and should concern anyone involved in law enforcement. In the last three decades, over 2,750 convicted criminals in the United States have been exonerated. Let me put that another way. The United States, a country that prides itself in its freedom, has put at least 2,750 innocent people in prison, robbing them of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of those, 375 were exonerated by DNA testing, according to the Innocence Project and 29% of those cases included false confessions. And that's only the people who were proven to be innocent. How many more are still in prison because they don't have adequate representation or the mental capacity to fight against the system? Women, as usual, get the short end of the stick. They are sometimes forced to confess to crimes that didn't even occur, like some modern-day Salem witch trial. I'm talking about incidents where a child dies from SIDS or some other natural cause, and the mother is blamed. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, as many as 40% of female exonerees were wrongfully convicted of harming their children or loved ones. 
Recent studies in Iceland and Scotland suggest that false confessions may make up a third of all confessions, that one in three confessions are not true. And yet, I sense that some of you may still be thinking, yeah, but I'd never lie about something so important. If I were in that situation, you could torture me all you want, but I'll still never confess to something I didn't do. And to those people, Friedrich Nietzsche would say, you're playing a game you don't understand. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I talked about Nietzsche before, in the episode on the Kent State shootings and the subjective nature of truth. I want to revisit this nihilistic philosopher today to discuss one of his most important essays, On Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense. Written in 1873, On Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense is a deep dive into the concept of truth, with a capital T, and how it is linked to our use of language. Nietzsche writes about the limitations of language when it comes to properly describing our reality and how that means we can probably never really come to the truth about anything anyway. For instance, in order to communicate efficiently, we humans use agreed-upon words that are very broad in meaning, words that are, in fact, little metaphors for various ideas. When we say cup, for instance, that can mean anything from a teacup to a solo cup to a hand-carved wooden vessel used for serving water. If I were to tell you I had a cup of orange juice this morning, what type of cup do you picture? There's a good chance the cup you're picturing is not the exact sort of cup I actually used. It is an untrue image, but it doesn't matter because you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. What is a word? asked Nietzsche. It is the copy... 
in sound of a nerve stimulus. But the further inference from the nerve stimulus to a cause outside of us is already the result of a false and unjustifiable application of the principle of sufficient reason. We speak of a snake. This designation touches only upon its ability to twist itself and could therefore also fit a worm. So we should just be more specific, you reply. Well, I'm sorry to say, it's metaphor all the way down. Instead of cup, I could have said solo cup, which would get you closer to a truthful picture in your mind, but my solo cup has James written on it, so I don't mix it up with anyone else's at the party. Okay, so just picture that, except you assume the solo cup was red. It was actually blue. If I were to say something like, I had a blue solo cup with my name on it that also had a chip off the rim of orange juice today. You'd think I was crazy or just being pedantic. My point is, we're already okay with a little wiggle room when it comes to truth in order to move a conversation along. In fact, Nietzsche's definition of truth is just as wiggly. Truth, writes Nietzsche, is a movable host of metaphors, a sum of human relations which have been poetically and rhetorically intensified, transferred, and embellished, and which, after long usage, seem to a people to be fixed, canonical, and binding. Truths are illusions, which we have forgotten are illusions. In short, truth is what we all agree is the truth. And that brings us back to a great incentive to confess to something we never did. Because as humans, we have a desire to agree with what the tribe believes to be true, even if it's not. Contrary to what TV shows suggest, police can and often do lie during interrogations. They will tell a suspect that they have a witness placing him at the scene, or they have matched his DNA on the murder weapon, even if they have not. Those of us of a certain age were raised to respect police, to trust them and to believe them. And here are a bunch of cops saying, you did it, you committed this murder. And the victim's family believes it too, and they crave closure. And all that's standing in the way of an end to this tragedy is to just admit that you were the one responsible. There's a strong, instinctual urge to just give them what they want, and to believe it to be true because we still wish to be part of this tribe. And so you say, yes, I did this thing, and in the eyes of the police, the courts, the family, the media... It becomes the truth, even if it's not, and everyone is at peace. Justice, they think, is done. As Nietzsche said, man has an invincible inclination to allow himself to be deceived. If confessions are so problematic, then why do detectives still work so hard to push a suspect to confess? Well, if they can get a suspect to confess, whether truthfully or not, it sure saves them a lot of work, doesn't it? There's no need to spend hundreds of hours canvassing a neighborhood to hunt down the actual perpetrator. Every profession has lazy employees, and police are no exception. If some idiot wants to close a case for you, why stand in their way? Another motivation is to inflate the win rate of the local prosecutor's office. Most prosecutors in the United States are elected by voters, and an easy way to get votes, especially from the older crowd, is to show that you are tough on crime. If your percentage of convictions is high, it looks great on paper. So there's an incentive for politically savvy prosecutors facing re-election to overcharge suspects so that they have leverage to cut deals for a reduced sentence in exchange for a confession. 
If an innocent man is facing 15 years in prison, but prosecutors offer him probation in exchange for a confession and a guilty plea, what do you think he's going to do? What would you do? I sure as hell wouldn't trust the next 15 years of my life to a jury full of people too stupid to get out of jury duty. Whenever I think about how far the police might go to get a confession, even a false one, I'm reminded of poor Kevin Young, the subject of my new book, Little Crazy Children. In 1990, a 16-year-old girl named Lisa Pruitt was stabbed to death behind a mansion in Shaker Heights. Her body was found less than 100 feet from her boyfriend's back door on the day he got out of the mental institution. But the investigation quickly focused on Kevin Young, an older boy from the same neighborhood, who was viewed as the weird kid in school. He wore black and listened to Metallica and played Dungeons and Dragons. The teenagers in town pointed the finger at him because he was an outcast, and the police followed their lead. Even though there was no physical evidence linking Kevin to the crime, and he had an alibi for the time of the murder. Everybody just really wanted it to be Kevin Young. Shaker Heights detectives tried many times to get Kevin to confess to the murder, at one point taking him to a hotel and interrogating him for over 24 hours. When that didn't work, they consulted with a professor of psychology out of Syracuse University named Murray Myron. Dr. Myron was recommended by the FBI who used him often to help them figure out the minds and motivations of famous criminals, people like David Koresh and Son of Sam. At first, Myron pointed out that Lisa's boyfriend made a much better suspect than Kevin Young, but the detectives just shrugged their shoulders. And so Dr. Myron said, quote, Okay, well, if Kevin did it or not, here's how you get him to confess, end quote. And he walked them through tactics that they could use to break Kevin's mind. Dr. Myron said they needed to, quote, clockwork orange Kevin into confessing to brainwash him like in that movie by Stanley Kubrick. Those are the conversations that happen behind closed doors in America. Kevin Young never did confess, and he was eventually found not guilty of the murder of Lisa Pruitt, but still to this day, many who live in Shaker Heights still believe he did it because that's what the police believe. It's their truth. They've made up their minds as a community. And so, say a prayer tonight that you don't become the target of a felony investigation. You may believe that you're strong enough not to break in an interrogation by lying detectives, but you might discover, like thousands of people before you, that sometimes it's easier to just give them the truth they want to believe. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out my new weekly podcast, True Crime This Week. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations at woodif.com. Until next time, remember that there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when somebody needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.